0: Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain.
1: And I'm Tom Stammers a French historian with a penchant for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, which I have to say feels so long ago now that I was practically in the manger.
0: (laughs) Yes, I think I was an able shepherd or perhaps an innkeeper (laughs) there in Bethlehem back then. This week we're discussing The Crown, season four which covers the period from 1979 to 1990, which obviously includes Thatcher, Diana, the Falklands, and an era of social division. As with all the other seasons of The Crown, this one dominated uh, national cultural criticism for weeks and weeks and weeks, with everyone asking whether it was true to life, where it wasn't true to life, whether it was fair, whether it was mean to to the Crown itself, to the Queen, to the royal family. Lots of fascination, but actually quite a few mixed reviews. Some mixed reviews, but
1: generally people feeling very glad that The Crown has come back round. Um, The Guardian described it interestingly as the best series so far of the royal drama with the family sliding into dysfunction and new characters providing 80 shoulder padded spectacle. Um, And The Mirror really picking up on the idea that The Crown is now a heritage brand. Um, The Mirror wrote, uh, complimented with razor sharp performances and furnished with the most luxurious set design that Netflix money can buy, The Crown has successfully sold itself as one of TV's most serious dramas. Um, now, I have to say, I very much enjoyed season four, but serious might not be the adjective that I was reaching for um, when I got to the end of it. Um, one thing I'd like to start with, Zoe, is just thinking about whether you think there's been any shift in tone in this series. And there has clearly been some critical commentary about, is this the moment when uh, Peter Morgan, the writer, really shows his kind of Republican credentials? You know, is there something nasty about this depiction of the royal family?
0: I think there's definitely a shift in sensibility. Is it nasty? Certainly, there are moments, which we will come to, where where he's deviating so far from, from what must have happened or what did happen that's clearly about some kind of agenda. But I think it did get a bit nasty. This was a a season which focused on a hell of a lot of acrimony. We see the horrendous relationship between Charles and Diana. We see just how cold and unforgiving and just nasty the queen herself can be, along with Philip and the the family. And you really see the firm coming together. You just wouldn't want to be Diana or any kind of outsider in this this situation. You also, you see the royals at play. You see them in Balmoral. It's a hideous scene. There's a moment where Dennis Thatcher describes
1: Balmoral in the series as half Scottish, half Germanic cuckoo land. And I have to say the Balmoral sequences were really cringeworthy. I mean, it's the humiliation that they put Thatcher through and the kind of pettiness of the family in Balmoral was, was kind of gross.
0: It's gross, but I think that might have actually been some of the truest to life of all of this. I mean, I, I think the aristocracy or the the very highest echelons probably... Is kind of like a just a nightmarish kind of children's parlor game. And that's it was the first
1: time that Dibble Dibble has given me goosebumps. Dibble Dibble gave (laughs) me
0: goosebumps. And you see the Queen Mother doing it. And and that's just just thinking, what am I doing here? So I think, I think there was a definitely in that sense, a a sensibility shift. I think the nastiness didn't just come out in the awful, clubby, insidery game playing, but also in the family relationships. And there's this this episode where the queen is sort of oh which children do I love most or least um, in response to a question by Philip and I thought that was a very soap opera device but she goes out with each of them and uh, for lunch and it's clear that there's just no no strong bond there whatsoever and it's partly that the children are horrendous are idiots, <laughs> or what? you know you think God the the royal children really are all a disaster area but you also see this is a serious perhaps dereliction of duty as a mother by the Queen, but also just a very depressing family situation. Yeah, I think
1: as an image of the Queen's monumental failure as a mother, this series is particularly unforgiving. Um, I loved the episode where she speaks to the children, uh, partly because it gave me a slice of Princess Anne and I know that Zoe, we both wish that there we will be an Anne spin Yes. Series. I want Anne to have her own franchise. I think Anne <laughs> yeah. is delicious. And also it showed some of the cruelty and that it was written with deliberate historical hindsight in that when she has the interview with Andrew, he's talking about his well, this sleazy blue movie star actress. And so this is clearly written post Epstein. And we're meant to realize that although Andrew is the apple of her eye and is clearly the one that she loves the most, there is something very unpleasant about his sort of sexual morality. Um, so I thought this was a kind of unforgiving episode that I quite liked because it it captured the gap of generations really, that this woman who's put everything into duty has ended up rearing these children who are fundamentally scarred and who are unable really to kind of fulfill the roles um, that the public demands of them.
0: But who are in terms of, sorry, oh, Zoe. No, well, I was just going to say, but who are also very much of their time. I mean, the queen comes from a time where duty actually made sense as a marital value and as, as a kind of way to live. And obviously as the queen, she had to have special duty, a especially dutiful framework in place. But you do see that to her kids who are born sixties, 70s. It's a completely different The things that made sense to the Queen and drove the Queen on no longer make sense to them. So the world of adultery and affairs and, you know, wanting happiness and Charles thinking he deserves what he wants rather than what he should do, and what he owes the family. That seems to be the the nub of the issue. There's been a lot of focus in the
1: criticism about the soap opera quality of this. And I have to say that's one of its pleasures. It does feel like dynasty in Windsor Castle. But then I think the soap opera also reflects the tawdriness, as you say, of the royal circumstances. Actually, it feels that there has been a moral shift between this series and the previous ones and that some of the kind of moral compass and some of the kind of boundaries of public and private are breaking down. And the clearest sign of that, of course, is the eruption of Princess Diana, which I have to say was one of the absolute joys of this series. Emma Corrin, I thought, was a complete revelation from somebody who... I think she was five when Princess Diana died and she's learned all of this through sort of studying you know, old interviews and sort of combing through the archive. But I thought she was the most vibrant, radiant interpretation of Princess Diana I've ever seen. Um, And I come from a household of Diana mourners and Diana um, idolaters. I mean, I, I imagine the Strimples might have been in a different camp, but I grew up very strongly thinking that Princess Diana was some sort of spectral extension of my mother. (laughs) Um, and feeling devastated in 1997 when that story came to an end. So the fact that Emma Corrin made me love Princess Diana all over again makes me feel extra grateful to her.
0: Well, I think there might be something of a physical similarity, Tom, if I may, between your mother and Princess (laughs) Diana, both extremely glamorous blonde. So I'm sure you did feel that sort of extra connection there. Um, I, as you rightly say, did grow up in a family with quite sceptical views towards Diana. Some snobbery, we might say, and I remember being pretty nonplussed when, in my friend's living room in Manchester, <laughs> by the sea, Massachusetts, uh, age sixteen, I learned of her demise. But this series, absolutely, Emma Corrin playing Diana, this is definitely the best, the best part of this whole series. It really made you think. God, she had it rough. I just thoroughly sympathized with her. In a way, she was the real modernizer set the The tone for what we're even seeing now with Meghan Markle. The thing that really comes out is how young she is as well. And
1: to go back to what you were saying about about Balmoral, I mean, the crown is not subtle in its metaphors. And we have all of those very brutal scenes of hunting and fishing, the kind of thing that got the Daily Telegraph viewers, you know, very hot under the collar that Charles wasn't handling his angling appropriately. But there are all these scenes of these people hunting down animals and destroying them. And you also feel that Diana, there she is, is one more piece of game that is kind of chased down and then destroyed by the family. And you did get a very strong sense of how vulnerable she was when she first met him. That weird, almost kind of Romeo and Juliet sequence where she's dressed as a creature from Midsummer Night's Dream and Charles is sort of first spying her through the leaves when she was 16. I mean, it really brought home to me her inexperience and I think one of the beauties of Corin's performance is how you see Diana emerge from being this quite vulnerable little ingenue into being someone who increasingly comes to appreciate her own power. And it doesn't shy away from showing you her narcissism, her dependence on celebrity, her kind of, you know, the fact she comes to life when a camera is switched on her. But it's a very interesting performance from how she goes from being, you know, the victim, the sort of obedient one who gets trampled on by her completely unfaithful husband, towards being a figure who realizes that she can rebel and she can use popularity as her kind of
0: weapon. What did you make of the depiction of Charles Zoe? Charles is a funny one because he, in the first few series, he was very sympathetic and you, you see how the Charles that we all ridicule today came, came to be through the kind of horrendous treatment he had at, at Gordon Stoon and then how horrible Philip was to him. And, and you, you got to see Charles in all of his complexities and then his efforts when he's Goes to Wales, becomes a Prince of Wales. Actually, learn Welsh, and in this you see a child of a new era where he is prioritizing his own sexual and romantic felicity, and the sense of entitlement that he should have the woman who he loves and who makes him happy. But then, what I think you see how he's. Again, it's, it's always the way the family imperatives come first. And so you do also sort of slightly sympathize with the way that he's frog-marched into this marriage. But I think this series leaves you in absolutely no doubt about who the villain is. And Charles is just clearly really, really nasty, I would say blatantly emotionally abusive to Diana. And Diana's just very, very uh, sympathetic. I agree. And I think some of the one of the shocking things is that some of the nastiest
1: episodes of Charles's behavior turns out to be the ones that are most historically accurate. Um, so we do know, indeed, that he pounced on Diana when she tried to comfort him after Mountbatten's death, um, which obviously is sort of slightly accelerated in that first episode. But there is a sense of grieving Charles, Charles feeling that he's the victim. Diana's suggesting some sympathy for him and then whoosh. That was the moment that he basically threw himself on her, as she said, the moment that she showed any sympathy for him. And you do get a sense of a very strong streak of self-pity in Prince Charles. It is also true that on his honeymoon, he did wear the cufflinks with the two entwined seas that Camilla had oh. given him. So there's Camilla and Charles cufflinks he did wear on his honeymoon. Wow. Um, So, you know, poor Diana, I mean, (laughs) you do feel that, I mean, perhaps the series exaggerates the extent to which the marriage was doomed from the beginning. And certainly the representation of bulimia in this makes it quite clear that Diana is a vulnerable character from the start, that she clearly has got major reservations about the marriage before it even begins. And I think it probably overplays the extent to which this is a folly, you know, that the whole thing is doomed to be a disaster. But there is no excusing the fact that Charles is is vicious in it, Um, and although he's a victim of his circumstances and he's a victim of his family position, he does behave with real cruelty, as do many other members of the family. In terms of cruelty, Zoe, I mean, somebody else I think that comes out quite badly from this is uh, one of your heroines, dare I say, Mrs. Thatcher herself. Uh, (laughs) I don't know how you felt about the presentation of uh, of Mrs. T in this.
0: Well, I wanted to love it because who doesn't love a bit of Gillian Anderson? But I think you had a sort of picture of a sort of demented 80-something-year-old in the Thatcher of 1979, which didn't make sense. And I think Unfortunately, it, it made you have to see her as eccentric at the very least, but really almost stupid at times. I think that's what's unforgivable because Thatcher may have been frustrating and she may have been repetitious at times and, and she may have really vexed and flummoxed the men who she was working with. But, but to make her seem stupid, I think is unfortunate. And the way that, for instance, an example of that is her reaction to her son Mark going missing the desert in Africa. And then the implication is that she is all guns blazing for the Falklands war because of Marx going missing and, you know, wanting to find him and then triumph at finding him. And and that sort of thing is just absolutely so far from the way she would have made calculations like that. And it also almost is sexist because it makes it seem like she can't think clearly politically. That's essentially what that scene does, which is actually inaccurate. So the, the crown wants you to think for all that she's this Famously, sort of type of feminist you could say. I mean, obviously, feminist hater, but you know, she is a type of a feminist hero. For all that she's that, oh, actually, when it came to something like a war, she was unable to do that without reference to her own son, which is just untrue. I think that was unfortunate, and it's also unfortunate that that's what everybody's going to think of as as fact as to what Thatcher was like.
1: I think that's revealing, Zoe, in a way that it sets up parallels between obviously the two women as kind of people who. Have biases towards them and children. And I think the way it captured Mark being put on a pedestal and poor Carol being trampled on is probably quite accurate. Oh, poor Carol. And poor old Carol. I mean, Carol's the real victim of Carol is four. the victim. Like, she's the she one really. Is. Feel for. But I did think um, it also goes to the heart of some of the sneakiness of Peter Morgan, is that we know that the events of Mark going missing do not coincide with the Falklands War. And in a way, it sort of proves the fact that the liberties he takes are not so much liberties of fact, although he does that a bit as well, but the way that he makes things coincide, the Mm. way that he suggests parallels between events that are otherwise kind of disentangled and disparate. Um, One just other thing I'd like to say about Thatcher, I agree with you, they played her strangely um, deranged and elderly, uh, you know, and it's interesting <laughs> six months older than the queen. And I suppose looking back on the eighties in my distant memory of it, um, I wouldn't have thought that she was six months older than the queen. And that I do think of this very vibrant figure in the, as you say, in 1979 in the early eighties, who was determined to change Britain and the queen being very prim. And so the idea that Thatcher is the older woman and is played as the older woman seems quite peculiar. Um, I also think part of the problem is that we never really see what Thatcher is battling against. And here Mm. I would say there is a bigger problem with the omission of politics in this series. Unlike, I have to say, series one and series two, which I thought were much better balanced, I suppose, in terms of how the crown is both the story of a family and the story of a nation, in this we don't really get a sense of what Thatcher is up against. You know, the IRA blow up Mountbatten, but then we never see them again. We don't see the attack on the Queen at the Trooping of the Colour. The Falklands War is a bunch of, you know, Larry fishermen painting some graffiti and singing a song, but we don't really see the dictatorship or we don't really think about the war itself. And all of the kind of politics of what Thatcher has done to Britain is presented rather uncritically through that figure, Michael Fagan, you know the man who trespassed into Buckingham Palace and had this interview with the Queen, um, and you know is presented as a sense of you know the left behind and the sort of abandoned pockets of Britain, and I just felt it was a very one note story about what Thatcher did to Britain, and you know it bought into the sense of her as a heartless, divisive. Vicious character, and obviously that's part of the legacy. But I, I felt that there was no nuance in the way that they rec- that they saw the eighties as a period of change, and there was no sense really of what she was up against.
0: And it was interesting; they almost wanted you to feel the same snobbery and revulsion that the Queen felt. So when you'd have these sort of tortured meetings between the Queen and Thatcher in Buckingham Palace, Thatcher always came across as being ill judged, over keen, uh, too much of a sort of blue stocking, hard working kind of geeky, annoying daddy's girl. daddy's girl, but just endlessly going on about it. You could see the queen being like, yes, yes, we've to enough that. Up. We know that. Yeah, we know that. Again, this is part of Morgan's attempt to make her seem tiresome and and also just slightly imbecilic.
1: Dare I say one thing they had in common, which I wish Morgan had explored, and he only gives a line to at the end, is their Christianity. Um, and actually then that final interview between the queen and thatcher something much closer to the truth comes out in other words the queen really admired margaret thatcher we know that they had differences of opinion we know that there are differences Mm. over the commonwealth but actually they worked together quite successfully and we know that after thatcher left office the queen kept in touch with her like that that was an ongoing relationship after thatcher's stint in number 10 and i think one of the things that links them both is religion and it was strange that I mean, I would just say in general, it's one of the odd things about how the Queen is presented in this series is that her religious life, which I would say is probably one of the most important things about Elizabeth II, she's almost the last true believer in the Church of England in Britain, was not properly explored. And yet, you know, that was such a big part of 80s politics in that the Archbishop of Canterbury, obviously... Um, Robert, Ritchie den- Robert Runcie denounced Thatcher. There was a lot more scope to think about this kind of difference of Christian values between them and how they work through all of that. And the queen is radically secularized in this. You know, you don't mm. really get a sense mm. of her kind of moral imperatives or how seriously she takes the kind of religious vocation of the role. Um, and as a result, it's hard to know what her and Thatcher have in common. Um, but, to come back to, sorry.
0: No, well, I was just going to say, I, I you that's right. And I think that interestingly, in the absence of religion, what you get is a bizarre depiction of the queen as a quite an, sort of quite a modern contemporary figure. Mm. And what I objected to was that she seemed kind of like a woke, mean girl, <laughs> like Woken the way it is basically being like, you're racist. I'm like in like all which of, is a know, joke, which is a joke. And also the stuff about, The Commonwealth and how she's so bleeding heart, and Thatcher is this horrible imperialist. And I think that kind of brings us to the interesting thing of how this desire to impose agendas and veneers may be fair enough, given Peter Morgan, the director, is you know he's a he's a he's an artist. He's he's able to do what he wants, but this is so close to history that a lot of people are going to be taking this as history. And Oliver Dowden, culture minister wanted a disclaimer saying this isn't history. And they refused to do that, which is interesting because there's lots of disclaimers about Diana's bulimia and scenes that may be disturbing. And in everything you watch these days, there's very careful disclaimers, trigger warning, trigger warnings.
1: I think yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that they're unwilling to just acknowledge that this is a work of some kind of creative license. And i I suppose for me it's it's interesting comparing this with the previous seasons and the the previous seasons as i say there was a stateliness and that stateliness Mm. reflects something about the queen herself the kind of the wonderful role of you know claire foy was totally brilliant Mm. in those early series but also the way that it tapped into kind of bigger political questions like it taught you about suez or it taught you about winston churchill and whereas this is so tawdry um and that's partly why it's delicious like you know it's bad for you like a I don't know, like a big box of Haribo, in my case, the kind of thing that I know is bad for me, and yet you can't leave alone because it keeps serving up these things that you that you shouldn't really kind of dive into. Um, so I think there is a the, the sort of trashiness of it is both that the monarchy has become trashier, um, but there's also something happening to contemporary history. And I think, unlike that previous era where you could speculate and you know you didn't really know what was going on you know, with Margaret's marriage in the 50s, or how did the Queen really, you know, feel about um, what was happening with her marriage to Philip. The problem with the present is that we know far too much about these people. I mean, you, you know, having lived through bits of the 80s, I remember the nonstop torrent of stuff in the tabloids, you know, when the Charles and Camilla sex tape came to light. And so we know that Charles dreams that he's Camilla's temper. Uh, these are things Tom, that I, I was know hoping you wouldn't bring about that the heir to the throne. But I'm saying there's different levels mm. of disclosure here that mean that watching this is a different kind of experience than sort of the speculative, imaginative game of what was it like 30, 40 years ago to being in a world where we are saturated with information mm. about the tittle tattle of the private life. And it, and it has slightly changed I think the reception of it and it's no longer about the mystery of monarchy that you're trying to unwrap it's confirming the dirty rumours and there are moments where although I love this series there are moments where I felt a bit gross that I'd been mm. binging on something that I shouldn't have had confirmed you know it was like a sort of a confirmation of some of my worst assumptions I think about some of the people are involved and that I think does have major implications for these people who are going to be our heads of state for the next generation. On the subject of the Queen, I felt quite conflicted about Olivia's performance in this. I have to say Olivia Colman, obviously a magnificent actress, but I've never really accepted the transition from Claire Foy to Olivia Colman. And I sort of hope that Imelda Staunton in a way in the next series will reset this. Mm. In that what was wonderful about Claire Foy was that she was inscrutable. It was incredibly Mm. hard to read some of the kind of emotional layers going on within her. Like there was a real sense that the Queen was a mask. Mm. And you had to really kind of pick out what was going on behind the behind the shutters. Mm. The problem with Olivia Colman is she's unbelievably expressive. Mm. And so that comes back to what you were saying about the wokeness, you know, the, the, in a way that the, the harshness of the queen to me was not portrayed in the way that it should have been. And mm. I kept feeling conflicted between the moments where she was chilly and gruff. And I thought, yes, that's my Liz. And Mm. then moments where she suddenly seemed cuddly and I thought, gosh, that's not the queen as as, as I anticipate her. The only thing that I think the queen gets cuddly about is corgis and horses. Mm. And otherwise I think everybody else is sort of kept in their place. I would say just one final thing is that the balance in this to me didn't work as well in that the Charles and Diana sequences were electric and the queen as a kind of arbitrator of that collapsed marriage was fantastic. But I came to resent all of the distractions. I felt that they hadn't worked out what they really wanted you to know and what was priority and what was just superfluous. So I think Princess Margaret was wasted, dare I say. We had that episode about the, um, the disabled cousins who were locked away and mm. Princess Margaret's revelation about all of that and her feeling pushed out. And although Helena Bonham Carter is wonderful, I was just hungry to get back to the main event. And I felt this series more than any other was uneven mm. in that there were these digressive distractions mm that, you know, were vaguely educational, but took you away from what you really saw as the emotional core, which is this bomb that's going off emotionally within the palace with the Charles and Diana marriage and how the fallout of that is gonna destroy the whole family. Mm. So it didn't, it didn't feel like a, an ensemble piece mm. in a way that the others really felt that every family member had a chance to tell their story and that each story mattered for the big arc. In this, there was definitely a sense of principles and secondary players. And I came to resent the secondary players mm me away from the, the real meat of the drama.
0: I actually don't think Helena Bonham Carter was that well cast either. No, I really no. miss the kind of original casting of having Vanessa Kirby Okay, well, Tom, why the hype?
1: So I think the hype is due to the fact that the crown has been going for years. I think it has a familiarity now that we've got very used to it, a bit like the monarchy itself. I think the hype is partly to do with the sheer luxuriousness of the filming. And then we talked about this with Queen's Gambit. But here is another victory of big budgets in terms of using these stately home settings like Wilton House, um, which are much grander, by the way, than anything the Queen actually lives in. Um, one of Michael Fagan's objections to the series was that he said, well, when I, when I met the Queen, she wasn't in a four-poster bed.
0: Yeah, that's very um, funny. And
1: actually, so they've given the Queen far more grandeur than she actually lives in by using all of these amazing locations. Um, and I think the other thing is, and I, this is just as a final thought, it's interesting to compare The Crown to something like The West Wing um, in terms of how contemporary, you know, how you use contemporary drama to make a commentary on the state of the nation. The West Wing was all about an aspirational vision of America, an America that was an alternative to the one that people were living under the Bush presidency, and that was sort of like a better redemptive version of America. I feel this is literally the TV that confirms your worst suspicions about Britain, that points out the kind of vulgarity of ruling class that points out the kind of limitations and the meanness of Margaret Thatcher and that actually exposes the kind of sordid underbelly that seems to underpin the establishment. So rather than a TV that makes you feel better about yourself, I think it's like the nation's guilty, dirty secret that people are binging on um, and that there's enough sense of personal connection to those events that people, indeed myself, are excited to go back to and see dramatized again. But I think the ultimate feeling is not a wholesome one. Zoe, what about you?
0: I think that's right. I think especially as we get closer to the present, I think the thing that eternally fascinates about the English or the British monarchy is the sense of how close they are yet how far they are. The fact that you could be a Michael Fagan and jump the gate and be in Buckingham Palace, but equally that all of their funny rituals and their history and their religion and their duty and all their funny sensibilities. And also their very important actual constitutional role does keep them very much far more than at arm's length. The recent stuff with Meghan and Harry mm. has re-stimulated an appetite for, as you say, all the tawdry wallowing in the royal mud. And people love to hate it. And so this, this season gives people the perfect opportunity to love to hate the royal family. In addition to that, it's just beautiful. The soundtrack is fantastic. Oh, I have to say it made me listen to early Stevie Nicks solo
1: stuff. So when Diana kind of does her kind of discovery that she's going to be marrying into the royal family, they play Edge of 17 by Stevie Nicks that I have listened to nothing else for the past two weeks. So the soundtrack has been joy.
0: Well, funny you should say that because I actually have avoided all the songs and I just listened to the kind of harp. Variation. <laughs> um, Martin Phipps, I think, is the is the guy who writes all the sort of do 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 do, <laughs> um, and that's what I like. So I think I think it's very atmospheric, and yeah, obviously the kind of Stevie Nicks side of it is also great. You know, the soundtrack it basically has two soundtracks, and they're both fabulous. So I, despite my reservations and my angers about this season, will obviously be tuning into the next one with the utmost enthusiasm. Join us next time for a discussion of HBO and the BBCs. We are who we are.